chapter 1 open as we come to begin our our short series in a short book this evening, the book of Haggai. And this evening we'll be looking at the first 11 verses of the chapter. And our theme both this this evening and next week as we return to chapter 1 will be consider your ways. Consider your ways. Imagine a time when God's people feel small and increasingly irrelevant. Imagine a time when the forces of the world seem so much stronger than the forces of the kingdom of God. Imagine, if you can, sincere believers in the God of the Bible being made to feel silly and out of touch even sometimes by, even sometimes by other so-called believers. Imagine a time when there seems little point in continuing to practice your faith or to uh, use your gifts because your circumstances are so discouraging. It's maybe not very hard to imagine some of those things, is it? One of the temptations for Christians in 2022 is that we give in to a sense of perhaps pointlessness and temptations to discouragement in our worship or our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps we think that the Christian church will never be as strong in this country as it once was. The last couple of years have undoubtedly damaged the morale and perhaps a sense of momentum and purpose and togetherness in the local church across our nation, indeed across all the nations. I wonder, are you sometimes tempted to think as a Christian, what's the point? Well, this man called Haggai had a message from God to deliver to people thinking in exactly those terms. It's 520 BC. After 70 years of exile in Babylon, the Jewish people have been allowed finally to return to their homeland, to the city of Jerusalem and to the surrounding land of Judah. A wonderful moment in their history. But the truth is that they are a shadow of what they used to be. The glorious, mighty kingdom of David The even more splendid kingdom of Solomon, they have vanished long, long ago. The population of God's people has shrunk from 12 tribes in their heyday that filled the promised land to just a small remnant of one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and a few others here and there. Much of the once great city of Jerusalem is rubble. And the parts that aren't rubble are empty because no one really wants to live in Jerusalem any longer. God's people are not ruled by a Jewish king, but by the pagan emperors of Persia. Haggai was sent to to preach to people who were perhaps thinking to themselves, what's the point? And yet God in his grace was not finished with his people. Remarkably, in what many would have dismissed as a day of small things, God sends them a prophet declaring a new direct message from heaven. And God calls his people to pick themselves up, dust themselves off and get on with life in the kingdom of God. To reassess their circumstances, to stop looking at themselves and their limitations and their difficult uh, situation. And to fix their eyes instead on their God and his glory and his grace and his word. Chapter 1 shows us four main things. 
It shows us that God questions his people's priorities. God responds to his people's repentance. God empowers our service. And God glorifies his own name. We'll only have time to go through the first of those tonight. And so uh, this evening as we look at chapter 1 verses 1 to 11, we're going to be thinking together of how God questions our priorities. God questions our priorities. In 538 BC, the Persian king Cyrus had decreed that the Jerusalem temple was to be rebuilt for the glory of the God of Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet had predicted this hundreds of years beforehand. Isaiah 44 verse 28. Cyrus himself, as far as we know, was not a believer, but God overruled in his thinking and provided everything that his people needed to go and to rebuild the temple and to return to the promised land. But that was in 538 BC. In the book of Haggai, we are in 520 BC. 18 years have passed since the first Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem. How has the temple rebuild been going in those 18 years? Not very well. Ezra chapter 3 verse 8 tells us that in the second year after the return from exile, the people, quote, made a beginning on the temple foundations. They made a beginning. The same way some of us make a beginning on a new diet or a new year's resolution. They made a beginning and then they made for the armchair. No sooner had they started than they had stopped. And 18 years later, there was still no temple in Jerusalem. Because the people were too discouraged. Or perhaps they really didn't care that much about it getting built in the first place. And it's into this rather bleak and hopeless time that God sends his word. Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came. It's perhaps hard for us, friends, to appreciate the, uh, the, the, the grace and the, and the drama and the surprise of that. We have God's word before us every day, every week. This is the first fresh direct revelation from God, perhaps for decades. And it's in the, perhaps some people have begun to think they would never hear from God in this way again. This day of dreadfully small things that they're living in. And yet God comes and God speaks through his prophet Haggai. And he, he's addressed, he, the word is addressed to Zerubbabel and Joshua. There's information about them in, in, the, in the leaflet. But they are the leaders of the people. They're the representatives of all the people. And so this is a message for everyone. Uh, dress, addressed to the leaders, but for everyone. And God calls himself the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. And that's a title that appears there in verse 2, but it's used 14 times in Haggai's short prophecy, Lord of hosts. And it's a title that emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Darius might be the king of the Persian Empire, the superpower of the world, but this is the king of heaven and earth and everything in them that is speaking. And look what he says, verse 2. This great God of all heaven and all earth, the Lord of hosts, he speaks to this tiny remnant in Jerusalem. And he says to them in verse 2, 
These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Essentially, God's message to his people is you need to sort out your priorities. For 18 years, they've been back in Jerusalem. And yet they've barely made a beginning rebuilding the temple, the place of worship. Why not? Why didn't it happen? Why wasn't the temple built? Well, the people could have pointed to various excuses, a whole string of reasons that some of which might have seemed pretty understandable. In particular, the book of Ezra tells us that some of their local enemies made life very difficult for the Jews. And they came up with all kinds of accusations and plots to hinder or completely halt the rebuild of the temple simply because they didn't like the Jews and they wanted to discourage them. Not only that, but the Jews that returned from exile needed time to settle in and, and build their own homes and figure out where everyone was supposed to live. Every Jewish family still had their claim to a particular part of the promised land. Uh, this was all part of God's law in the Old Testament. And it would have taken time to sort out where everybody was supposed to go and who everybody was after 70 years in a foreign country. Practical, logical excuses. But were they acceptable excuses? No. Look at verse 4. God says, is it a time for you to dwell in your panelled houses while this house, that's the temple, lies in ruins? Some of you might be wondering, what does that word panelled mean? <laughs> well, the word panelled comes, comes from the Hebrew word for ceiling. So it's not that the people have necessarily built, you know, expensive houses and Spent 18 years on furnishings and interior decor. It's not that there's anything sinful about panelling in your houses. Otherwise, some of us might be in trouble. But God's pointing out here simply that their houses are finished. Their houses are finished. The ceiling is on, so the houses are done. The people have settled down is the point. The people have sorted themselves out. The houses are built. And so that's not an excuse 18 years on. Of course God was willing to give the people time to build their own houses after 70 years in exile. But this is 18 years later. And God's house is still in ruins. Just look at verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Just notice friends, the people didn't disagree that the temple should be built in theory, but what they were saying was, not yet. Yes, we will build the temple, but not yet. Yes, we will. We, we will get back to proper public worship of God in the way that he has commanded, but not yet. What have they been doing instead for 18 years? Well, look at verse 5. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. 
And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. What he's saying is they have been prioritizing all the wrong things. They've given all their time and their focus to material concerns. It wasn't enough to get the house built. They had to do this and that and the other thing before they got back to the worship of God. Pursuit of food, pursuit of money, pursuit of comfortable living, pursuit of growing the business, expanding the land. And it's getting them nowhere, God says. Verse 9, look what he says in verse 9. God says, I blew it away. God was the reason that they were having poor harvests. God was the reason that the clothes were wearing out. God was the reason that these people weren't feeling any satisfaction with the things that they had. Why, verse 9? I blew it away. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. The people have been running about after clothes and food and business and whatever else. None of which was to be the ultimate purpose of life in the promised land. And so God comes to them and says, consider your ways. Think about your priorities. And you might wonder, well, why did God care about a building anyway? It's just bricks and mortar. He's the infinite, eternal, everywhere present God. It's not as if he, it's not as if God needs a house to live in in the way that you and I need a house to live in. Why did this building matter to him? Well, it matters, friends, of course, because of what it represents. The temple in the Old Testament represented the unique presence of the Lord of hosts among his chosen people. It was the physical embodiment, if you like, of that great promise. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will be with you. And those words point to the fellowship of God and his people, the togetherness of God and his people. That God would come and dwell with them in a, in a way that he isn't with the other pagan nations of the world. It says to them as well that there is a way to come to God. That through sacrifice and through worshipping God in the way that God has commanded. We can approach him, the holy God, in worship and enjoy him forever. And as well as that, it was a witness to all the nations. Here is what the true God has commanded. Here is how you can know the true God for yourself. And so by leaving the temple unfinished, friends, the people were saying, all of that is not a priority for us. God's presence, God's blessing, God's worship, God's word. We'd rather chase after food that doesn't satisfy and clothes that wear out and money that falls through our fingers like sand. The ESV study Bible says the decaying temple was symbolic of a decaying relationship between God and his people. Yes, the temple needs rebuilt, the people said, but not yet. And those two little words, not yet, are some of the devil's favorites. They've led to the backsliding of many a Christian and the shipwreck of many a soul. 
How often have you and I said, not yet to the things of God? Maybe you're here this evening or listening in online and you're someone who has been saying, not yet to God for a very long time. And you feel some sense of guilt or even conviction that you are a sinner. That you have rebelled against, turned your back upon a holy, awesome and perfect God. You've heard perhaps repeatedly from parents, from preachers, from youth leaders, from friends, from loved ones. That you must repent, turn your back upon your sin and confess your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he has made for sin on the cross. And you have been saying, not yet. When are you going to stop saying not yet and finally say, I repent. That my only hope for salvation, for life in heaven and not hell, is to finally trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christians can be guilty of making excuses like this as well. I should read and meditate over the scriptures. Absolutely I should. But right now I have this job. I have this daily schedule. I have this problem. So not yet. I should invite the neighbor in for dinner. Get to know them better. Share the gospel with them. But not yet. I should put my gifts to work in God's kingdom, perhaps get more involved in my church, but not yet. I've been speaking to pastors from other congregations, denominations over the last few months, and they say that there are still people in their churches who have been saying, we will come back to church, but not yet. After this part of the pandemic or after the next part of the pandemic, maybe then, but not yet. I wonder, is the church in Northern Ireland guilty of a not yet attitude sometimes in terms of our evangelism? Are we waiting for things to get easier? Are we waiting for when suddenly people begin to show more of an interest again in coming to church? Are we waiting for things to get back to what our grandparents or maybe our great-grandparents would have known as normal? When the average Jew prods and Catholics around us at least had some respect for Christian morality or the teaching of the local church, at least had the good manners to go along to the church in which they were baptized or married. And right now we think, well, who's going to listen? And no one really cares and not yet. The mission of the people in the day of Haggai was the same as ours, friends, to be witnesses Witnesses to the glory and the grace of the Lord of hosts. They were to witness by their worship in a rebuilt Jerusalem and a rebuilt temple. A public demonstration to the nations around them. That their God was central to their lives. A private faith would not fulfill the mission then. And a private faith will not fulfill the mission now. A faith that didn't move them beyond the front door of their panelled houses was not what God was looking for then and it's not what God is looking for today. He called them and he calls us to a faith that is evident and energetic in every part of our lives. And if we're waiting for a time when it's more convenient and less unpopular to speak to someone about our faith or open our homes or 
open our diaries for fellowship with other believers or with unbelievers. Well, not fellowship, but times to build relationship with them and to share the gospel. If we're waiting for a perfectly convenient time for all of that, we're always going to be saying, not yet. These people can make all the same excuses as us. Political instability, changing economic conditions, lots to do in the house, not as many of us as there used to be. And God's response was, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Have we been chasing after food that does not fill us, clothes that wear off us, money that quickly leaves us, experiences that disappoint us? That's a bigger temptation for you and I because of the part of the world that we live in than it is for many other people in the world today. Because of all the material blessings that God has given to us. And it's not a sin to make money. Make as much as you can to the glory of God. And it's not a sin to have savings and to enjoy the homes that God has given us. But because of everything that we have, these things, we are, we are more prone to the temptation of putting all our joy and all our hope and all our priority into these things and to saying not yet to the mission of God. Haggai, friends, was sent to preach to farmers and fathers and mothers and business people, busy people like all of us, And the message was the kingdom of God still comes first. And so in our remaining time, which won't be long, I want us to think more about these these words of, of God through Haggai. Consider your ways. And I just want to suggest a few ways, a few areas that we might consider as particularly in the early stages of this new year. First of all, consider your intake. Consider your intake. Consider what you are taking into your mind and heart. We're now living in a culture that takes in a great deal but gives out very little in terms of the, the good of other people. Much of what we take in has very little spiritual depth and does very little good for our souls. According to Tech Times, the average social media video is just two minutes long. Longer than that, and people's attention spans perhaps begin to get strained. We're living in a culture of 280-character tweets, Facebook and Instagram feeds that we're just scrolling through, endless apps with endless notifications. These things are changing the way that people think and even the way we relate to the world. The research shows that we are becoming addicted to the intake of information, likes and follows and everything else that we get off our phones. This is the kind of stuff that people are increasingly taking into their minds. Uh, Tim Challies, who wrote a book called The Next Story, it's I think it's almost 10 years old, but uh, very relevant, all about the impact of digital technology from a Christian perspective. Uh, And he gives this advice, begin to distance yourself from distractions. Be ruthless if necessary. You'll soon learn how much information you can live without Distractions will try to draw you down to shallow levels of thought and shallow ways of living. Eliminate distractions and fill your mind with ideas and thoughts that challenge you and increase your love for God. In other words, let's get into the Word. Let's spend less time in news feeds and more time in feeding upon the Scriptures. 
Listen to Christian podcasts instead of always music. Take the time to meet a Christian friend face to face. Catch up, bear burdens, pray together, keep the phones off the table. Try the Bible in a year reading plan or a two-year one or a three-year one. Buy a Christian book and see if you can read it by Easter. Some of you might say, well, I'm not a reader. Well, if you have a smartphone, if you read the news, you're already reading all kinds of stuff. So just make time to read the best stuff. You are what you take in. Don't let what you take in make you a shallow, superficial person. Consider your intake as this new year begins. But also then, as as well as considering your intake, uh, consider also your output. Consider your output. It doesn't just matter what we take into our minds and hearts. It matters what we put out with our mouths and our hands. Uh, And one thing I hope we can do more of, and I've hinted at this already and spoke about it in the autumn during the Love Your Church series, but hopefully this year we can get back to more of hospitality and face-to-face fellowship in big groups, small groups, one-to-one. It's a, it's a gaping hole in church life these last few years across the wider church. The Christian life is not just about taking in the word. It's not just about me feeding for myself upon the word. It's also about building up one another, ministering to one another. And one of the best ways to do that is over food and drink, either in our own homes or wherever we like to meet for a coffee or a chat or whatever it might be. Uh, Hospitality literally means inviting in the stranger. And hopefully as we invite them in, they become less of a stranger. We build relationships. We get to know one another. We are able to better help and encourage one another. I've mentioned before, I believe, that the story of Rosaria Butterfield saved out of a life of atheism and homosexuality by God's grace. She now has a wonderful ministry all over the world. Uh, And one of the things she talks about frequently is the impact and the influence of being welcomed into a Christian home and how that played a part in her coming to faith. Uh, And yes, that pastor and his wife, they were praying for her and they made that known, but they never made her feel like a project. They made her feel like a guest Uh, and they built a relationship with her. They made time Is there space at our kitchen tables or in our diaries, space in our budgets to welcome people in or to go out and meet people where they are, to build relationships with Christians and with non-Christians? Don't keep saying not yet to these things. These are priorities in the kingdom of God. And it will mean perhaps making changes to our schedules and routines. Maybe instead of always friends or family in for a a lunch on the Lord's Day, we take time to have a neighbour in. Or we take time (coughs) midweek or at a lunch or whenever it might be to invite in some colleagues. Or to invite in uh, teammates after training. We build friendships. And we begin to see what what makes each other tick and how we might pray and how we might help and how we might encourage or how we might proclaim the gospel if it's if the need is there romans 12 verse 6 having gifts that differ (coughs) according to the grace given to us let us use them 
Let us use them. And this doesn't mean that we have to be holding different events and meetings every night of the week here or in our homes. But are there younger Christians in your church that you could take to presbytery youth events? Are there older Christians that you could begin to visit on a regular basis? Are you living with Christian friends at uni or do you go to school with Christian friends and you could start a Bible study or you could attend Christian or Scripture Union? Could you make time in the months ahead to join one of our prayer meetings midweek or on the Lord's Day? Or to meet one-on-one regularly to pray with a fellow believer? Some of you men, I hope and I'm praying, will have to consider in a few months' time Is God calling me to become an elder or a deacon in this church? And that will be a costly calling. But it may be one that you have to answer. And all of these things are costly, but they are the priorities of the kingdom of God. And so we consider our intake and we get God's word into more, get it more into our minds and our hearts. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks And we act. Consider your intake. Consider your output. And finally this evening. Consider your Christ-likeness. Consider your Christ-likeness. And this is perhaps the most searching examination of all. Where am I in my walk with Christ? As the new year begins. Are there sins that I was battling this time last year. That I need to keep battling today. How much of the gentleness of Christ do people see in me? How much of that extraordinary love that we were thinking about this morning? How much of his patience for our loved ones, for our colleagues? How much of his compassion for needy people? How much of his zeal to preach the gospel? This is what the Christian life is all about at the end of the day, friends. Becoming more like Christ. We were thinking about that in our CY the other night of... Obedience and how that obedience is in an effort to, by God's grace, become more the image of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to know Christ. Is that your first priority as this new year begins? If it is, dear friend, be assured God will give you the grace and the help and the power from his spirit, as we'll see next week. He will give you the power that you need to do whatever he lays upon your heart to do, to make whatever changes in your, priority, in your priorities that perhaps need to be made. He will give you grace sufficient for those things. And so God calls his people this evening to consider our ways. Are we organizing our priorities around him? Or are we squeezing Christ into the few remaining gaps in our lives? It's in every part of our lives that we are to bring glory to God. It's every day that we're to be concerned with his kingdom. And so the first thing God says to a small group of weary believers wondering what's the point or perhaps saying not yet. He says, consider your ways. We may feel small. We may face challenges, but Jesus is on his throne. We're still waiting for him to return. And so there is a mission to be part of. Let's each one of us, friends, consider our ways and consider how we can play a part in that mission of God's.
Amen.